All right, go ahead and turn with your Bibles. Ephesians chapter four uh, is where we're gonna go today. Uh, if you're with us here for the first time, last week we started a new message series called Fuel and Fire, where we're uh, studying the core doctrines, the foundations of the Christian faith, what we believe, why we believe it, why it matters, and what it all means uh, for our lives. The voice you heard in that short little video is a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. You'll hear for the next several weeks. And uh, he was a British pastor from the mid 20th century. And he used the language of fuel and fire to describe the relationship between doctrine and life, because uh, we don't want the things that we believe just to be stuck up in our heads. We want these uh, to actually be things that we live uh, with our hands and feet as the body of Christ. And so today we're going to be looking uh, at the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, My oldest son, uh, Gideon, is seven, and he uh, likes to um, spend uh, second service with us every single week because he usually comes the first one. He's sick at home today, unfortunately, but uh, he likes to be with us for both services because he likes to help with the loadout side of things after for the second service. And uh, he also knows that there's lunch involved in that most likely on the way home. And so a little bit of initiative for him. And so uh, one day we're driving home and he's always got really, really good questions about stuff. I like to follow up with whatever uh, they talked about in Cross Kids that morning. And we get in the car and, and the questions are really just benign at first. He's like, uh, hey dad, what's that stuff hanging on the trees? I'm like, that's, that's Spanish moss. Uh, we have in fact had that conversation about a, a thousand times in the past two years. And uh, he's like, hey dad, who was the first president? I'm like, it's George Washington. And he's like, hey dad, uh, are we gonna get lunch on the way home? Yes, we are. And then he goes, hey dad, what's the Trinity? And I'm like, okay. Like just preach two services. I'm a little bit worn out. And now my seven-year-old son is throwing me for a loop. And, and what I like to do, I have a very dry, sarcastic sense of humor. What I like to do with my boys whenever they ask me a complicated question is I'll just answer it in grown-up terms just to see what they do. And so I was like, well, Gideon, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. It teaches that there's one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. Each of them are fully God. They are three, and yet they are one. And as much as I would love to say that my seven-year-old son sat there and said, uh, yes, Father, I completely understand exactly what it is that you're saying. Uh, He says, oh, can we go to Taco Bell? And I was like, absolutely, we can. And so uh, I think when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, again, we're going to spend some time here this morning. uh, You study a doctrine like this, and you just kind of take a deep breath and go, whew, can we go to Taco Bell? Like, listen, we, we need to debrief this somehow because uh, J.I. Packer is a great theologian. He said, the Trinity is one of the most difficult truths the human mind has ever been asked to handle. And so what, what I want to do to the very, very best of my ability today is, is to help us take this very, very complex, mysterious thing and somehow bring it down to earth in some understandable terms that, that help us see a little bit about who God is and uh, who he's calling us to be as his children in this world. So this is, again, just like last week, this is directly uh, from our doctrinal statement. This is what we believe as a church about God. Uh, There is one and only one true living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal, personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all powerful and all knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him, we owe the highest love reverence, and obedience. 
The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. And again, just to help us kind of break that down Barney style a little bit this morning for the sake of what we're doing, this is the central truth we want to focus on from Ephesians 4, is that the Trinity reveals who God is for all eternity, but the Trinity also models the ideal for Christian community. Because here's what we don't want to happen, again, with a doctrine like this, as complex as it can be, as difficult as it can be to understand, we don't want it just to be stuck in our heads. God has revealed himself in this way expressly because he wants this community to be lived out in the world around us. And the way we reflect the full nature of God is through loving community with the church. So uh, let's read again from Ephesians chapter four, verses four through six. The apostle Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we see first here from this morning, this morning from Ephesians chapter four, that God is three distinct persons. We're going to look at just three foundational truths about the Trinity and how God expresses himself through his word and how he has done for all of eternity. God is three distinct persons. Paul Paul writes here, there's one God and father of all. And then he says that there's one Lord, that's Jesus. And he says there's one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. This word Trinity was first used by the early church, Father Tertullian, in uh, the early third century. And uh, it's actually shorthand for the term uh, triunity or three oneness. And this word Trinity is never actually used in scripture, but even though the word is never explicitly stated. Uh, The concept is very, very clearly implied from start to finish in scriptures. One God uh, revealed as three distinct persons. And so Trinity is the word that we use as shorthand to describe uh, the three and oneness of God. And we see uh, the Trinity at work both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So the Old Testament, we see uh, the Trinity at work in creation. If we go back uh, to the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created And the name that's used for God here is Elohim, which is the plural name for God. That this is further carried out in Genesis 1.26, when God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So it continues to emphasize this plural nature. If you look uh, really into the Hebrew as as well, this is very important that uh, oftentimes that word beginning can be used interchangeably with the word uh, firstborn. So uh, there was a Jew, uh, one of the... um, Jewish Targums from uh, about 200 BC. So this is before uh, Christ came. One of the Jewish Targums actually uh, interpreted Genesis chapter one, verse one, like this. In the beginning, by the firstborn, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to say, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. So you see the fullness of the Trinity at work from the dawn of creation. This is uh, consistent with the Elohim of Genesis one. It's consistent with John chapter one, which we as a church family study back in December. In the beginning was the word and the word that's Jesus was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is consistent with Colossians 1 where the apostle Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or uh, not firstborn in the sense that he was born, but in the sense that he was preeminent uh, in all of creation. So that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see the Trinity at work uh, in three major events in the life of Jesus. First and foremost was if the birth of Christ. 
You have Mary who is with child by the Holy Spirit. And then she is uh, overseen and protected by the sovereign care of the father as uh, she carries Jesus and as she travels. And then ultimately she gives birth to the son. We see the Trinity at work at the baptism of Jesus, where the son is blessed by the father and then the spirit in the form of a dove descends on the son. We saw early as a church family just a couple of weeks ago. We see the spirit, uh, the, the Trinity at work in the Great Commission where Jesus gives his church instruction to baptize people, how? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so uh, all throughout scripture, the consistent witness that we see is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. But uh, throughout the centuries, there have been a number of, of challenges and distortions on the teaching of the Trinity uh, that have emerged throughout the generations of the church. And they're really uh, three broad categories that we could sum up what, what, are, what are known really as Trinitarian heresies of things that we would uh, deny as uh, and call distortions of the teaching of the Trinity. They're uh, trifling tritheism, modalism, and Arianism. So uh, tritheism would teach that there are three distinct gods that are uh, loosely related to each other. This is very similar to what you'll find uh, in Mormonism. Uh, modalism uh, would teach that there are three modes of God's existence or manifestations is often a word that's used by, by modalists, uh, that God uh, exists uh, not successively or, or not simultaneously, but successively. He's the Father, then he's the Son, and then he's the Spirit. That's very common uh, in oneness Pentecostalism. You have uh, Arianism, which uh, taught that there was a time that Jesus did not exist, that he was a non-divine uh, created being. You'll find that very common within Jehovah's Witnesses. And so uh, ultimately, Arianism was rejected and condemned as heresy by the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And here's what all three of these distortions have in common, is they pit God's threeness and his oneness uh, against each other. That they, they try to make them in competition with, with each other, but God, as we see in Scripture, is not three or one. He is three and he is one. God is three distinct persons. And second, uh, we see from his word that each person is fully God. So he's three distinct persons and each person is fully God. We see this affirmed throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the apostle Paul affirms that the Father is God. So 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, he says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods, little g gods, and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the Father is God. We see uh, from uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter one, that the Son is God. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We really see the power of the Holy Spirit at work and the authority of the Holy Spirit at work in the book of Acts. There's a man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, and they lie about an amount of money that they were giving to the church based on a field that had been sold. And so when Peter confronts them on this, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter affirming the Holy Spirit is, is God. And these truths were really crystallized in the third century by the confession of uh, the Apostles' Creed, which begins each major section with the affirmations of the Godhead. So section one begins with, I believe in God the Father. This is just what we sang earlier, essentially. I believe in God the Father and uh, second section in the Lord Jesus Christ. And third section, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
And all three of these were affirmed by the early church councils. So uh, three major church councils in the first centuries that were uh, uh, recognizing, as we saw last week, the authority and the canon of scripture. So there were councils at Nicaea, uh, Constantinople, and Chalcedon. So uh, at Nicaea, this council was formed to combat Arianism. And it affirmed at this council that Christ was of one substance with the Father. Christ was the Logos. He was the word who became flesh. He wasn't just like God. He himself was God. And then at Constantinople, officially, uh, condemned uh, Arianism as heresy and it affirmed the Holy Spirit within the Godhead. And then at Chalcedon, they convened to discuss the relationship of uh, Christ's humanity with his divinity. In theology, this is known as his uh, hypostatic union and affirmed Christ as both fully God and fully man. And, And this is important because if we see God as less than three distinct persons, or if we see any of those distinct persons as less than divine, then at that point in time, we have, uh, we've departed from orthodox faith. And, and church, the reason why this is so important that we get it right when it comes to God is because if we mess it up with God, we'll mess up everything else. And so last week, we started with the foundation of the authority of God's word because it's from the word of God that we derive all of our foundational Christian doctrines. We have to get it right with God. And we cannot be guilty of making him less because uh, if we drift uh, into this, if we drift away from orthodox teaching, uh, we're in error at best or heresy at worst. And so it might be, man, this is a very mysterious doctrine. There's a lot of mystery shrouded up and wrapped up in the Trinity, but we have to do our very, very best to understand the truth of how God has revealed himself in his word. So God is three distinct persons, Each person is fully God. And third, there is one and only one God. God is three distinct persons. Each person is fully God. And there is one and only one God. That this is what Paul writes about here in Ephesians chapter four. He uses this word one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. This is the, the, uh, the affirmation of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter six. It was a pronouncement uh, from the nation of Israel. This is what they were, were declaring frequently. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? He's, he's one. So our God is three. So there's that. And our God is one. Everybody understand? We're, we're, we're good with that. So he's, he's three and he is one. He's not three gods or one God. He's not uh, one God among many gods. He's the only God and there is no other. He's three and he's one. Each distinct person of the Trinity is fully, completely, and equally God, is in eternal relationship with each other. They are all uh, eternal. They're all omnipotent, which means they're all powerful. They are all omniscient, which means they are all all knowing. They are all omnipresent, which means they are all everywhere. We have to understand this. We have to understand that the unique sense that the Godhead carries and the simple reality that there's really no full way that we as human beings can describe the nature of this relationship. You know, it's funny that there's been so many errors. There's been so much accidental heresy in the church in trying to use some sort of metaphor or word picture or illustration to try and describe the nature of the Trinity. And so I've heard it, you know, people try to describe it like, well, the Trinity's like an 
egg, you know, an egg has, has three parts. There's the, there's the shell, there's the yolk, there's the, the, the album. And people can say, well, the Trinity's like, like water and water can be liquid or it can be a gas or it can be a solid. I kid you not, I saw this in a YouTube video last year. This guy was like, the Trinity's like a fidget spinner, you know, like you, you've got this central piece and there's the three pieces that revolve and you, you spin it around. But every single one of these in some way, shape or form falls short. So uh, th- this is what I wanna do. There's gonna be a chart that, that's up on the screen uh, behind me here. This, this is a diagram, a guy named Justin Taylor with the Gospel Coalition. I'll try to get out of the way here. And, and uh, this is not meant to uh, illustrate really the, the relationship of the Trinity and how the Godhead works as much as it is uh, to diagram how each member of the Trinity uh, relates to the other. And so this is what we see. If I want to just focus us in a little bit on the triangle that's in the middle, because many of you have probably seen something like this before. It's got the Father up here, uh, the Son on the, le- on the bottom left, the Holy Spirit on the bottom right. And what you'll commonly see is, is at least that triangle to describe that nature, that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but the Father straight down the triangle is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, now what Justin Taylor has added to that that I think is really helpful for us is uh, a couple of more elements that understand, uh, help us understand how each member relates to the other. So as you see here, uh, the work of the Father is to glorify the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. The work of the Son is to glorify the Father. And, and then uh, each one of the members of the Trinity have what's known, there's a, a really complicated theological word for it, but it's just, it's, it's expressed as a mutual indwelling. So you have the Father who is in the Spirit and the Spirit is in the Father. The Spirit is in the Son and the Spirit is in the, or the Son is in the Spirit. The Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. And the work of each is to glorify the others. We good? Everybody's on the same page. This is about the, the best way. And, and guys, here, here's, here's the simple truth that there's no story, that there's no illustration, there is no metaphor that adequately describes the nature of the Godhead. And the simple reason for that is because there is no God like our God. That there's absolutely nothing that we can do. There, there's no language I can come up with, no story. That this is about the best that we can do. We can just try our best based on the truths that we find in Scripture to describe who He is. I love how Elizabeth Elliot said, she, she, she said that a God who is small enough to explain is not big enough to worship. And it's so important that we cling to this because the moment we lose wonder, the moment we lose mystery will be the moment that we lose worship. We will not worship what we can explain. You know, the reality is, is, is man, there's some tensions, there's some truths about who God is that we will not resolve this side of eternity. Again, I think this is about the best that we can do this morning, just to to do our best to describe how each of these members of the Trinity relate to each other. But there is simply no God like our God. And there's mystery in his nature because there's mystery in his name. You go to Exodus chapter three, and this is maybe my favorite verse in, in all of scripture. And, and you've got God who's coming to Moses. He's calling him to go to lead his people. And when God is introducing himself to Moses, when he gives him his name, God says to Moses, Exodus three fourteen, I am who I am. He introduces himself as a verb. I mean, it doesn't even make sense, right? I mean, just, just think about this for a second. Like how silly it would sound. Take, for example, like Snow White and her seven dwarves. How silly would it sound if their names were expressed as verbs? So sleepy would be sleeping and sneezy would be sneezing and dopey would be doping. 
right? He'd be a, a great Olympic athlete in the 21st century. And it just, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. And yet that's how he introduces himself. You know, you and I, we, we go to a meeting, we go to a party, we pick up a name tag and, and we write on it. Hi, I am Taylor. I am John. I am Bob. I am Bill. I am Susie. We put our names. God shows up and it just says, hi, I am. I just am. There's no God like our God. And he's worthy of our worship because he's not the great I was. He's the great I am. He still is today who he was then. So, so that is, that's the doctrine. That, that's, that's the doctrine. It's as simple as we, we can try to understand that this morning. That's the doctrine. Uh, that's the fuel. Now, let's talk about the fire. How, how does that fuel feed the fire of our lives? And how do we, as followers of Jesus, uh, reflect this triunity as a community of believers? A few things here quickly. First, we, we do this by pursuing doctrine, uh, unity doctrinally. So, so again, that, that's what we're doing this morning. That that's what we're doing over these uh, 13, 14 weeks. We were pursuing uh, unity doctrine because this is about aligning our hearts and minds with God and that we're not just worshiping him uh, uh, haphazardly, but we are worshiping him accurately uh, according to how he's revealed himself in his word. So this is about aligning our hearts and minds uh, with him. So you, you get here in Ephesians 4 and, and this statement that Paul makes of there being one Lord, one faith, one baptism, this is really a, a formal faith confession. I mean, that's a good foundational statement to be able to, to center the Christian faith on. And so uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is so critically important for us because it is the foundational doctrine that separates orthodox faith from unorthodox faith. For wrong about God will be wrong about everything else. And so uh, this doctrine is, is what we uh, as a church family would call a closed-handed doctrine. And let me explain what I mean by that. If we say that something is a closed-handed doctrine, what we are essentially saying is this is not up for debate here. That this is resolved, this is settled. Uh, you can call us and we can sit down and have a conversation and you can disagree, but hey, that's what we're gonna hold on to as a church and that's absolutely not going to change. And, and really, as we look at all these doctrines over these 13, 14 weeks, these are our core foundational doctrines that we're studying together as a church family. And we are gonna call these things as a church family, closed-handed doctrines. Now, here's what's important to understand. Even within a closed-handed doctrine, in some doctrines, there can be a little bit of open-handed disagreement. The Trinity is not really one of those. We have to be solid on this across the board because if we lose out on God, we lose everything else. But, you know, for example, we as a church family, we'll, we'll look at baptism again here in just a few weeks. We, we talked about this a couple of times already, and we, uh, as a church family, by conviction— we uphold believers' baptism by immersion, meaning that uh, we believe that uh, followers of Jesus uh, should be baptized after they've made an authentic profession of faith. And yet we recognize uh, that there are other very, very faithful followers of Jesus Christ uh, who have different convictions on us with baptism. Now, as a church family, that's closed-handed. We've said that's our conviction. That's what we believe. But we do believe we can still have open-handed disagreements with some other Christians. Well, we'll look in our doctrinal statement. What needs to be closed-handed is the fact that there is a creation God who spoke everything into existence. That's closed-handed for us, that God is the creator of everyone and everything. How long God took to create the earth, there's going to be some open-handed disagreements. That Jesus will return. We'll look at last things here in several weeks, that Christ will return one day physically, that he's going to come back. For us, that is a closed-handed doctrine. When exactly Jesus is going to return is going to be open-handed because, by the way, Jesus himself said, that's not for you to know. 
So, so we're not gonna spend, this is just our, we're, we're kind of just laying this down as a church family. We will not spend inordinate amounts of time getting lost unnecessarily in unnecessary conflict over things that can have some open-handed disagreement. I know that, that a lot of us, we have very hot-button topics on, on creation and uh, the return of Christ and all of that. At the end of the day, church, what's most important is that we agree, hey, there's a God who created. What's most important is that we agree one day Christ will return. We wanna sit down in coffee shop and have conversations and hammer that out and read books together. That's awesome. Just don't forget, there's still 2 billion people on this planet who don't even know the name of Jesus. So let's not become the people who are making the 14th pass through the buffet line and debating the dessert options when there's still 2 billion people who don't even know that there's a meal. We just as a church family are not gonna get locked in on second tier doctrinal debates. We were gonna land on what's most important. We're gonna hold it with a tight fist, but we're gonna allow there to be some gracious, open-handed disagreement. So we pursue unity doctrinally. You asked the question this morning, okay, so, so how then do I interact with other Christians? With, how do we interact with other churches uh, with whom we might have some second-tier doctrinal disagreements? I got a good piece of wisdom from a very uh, old, wise pastor a couple of years ago. He said, when it comes to those with whom I might have some open-handed disagreement, he said, this is what I have to keep in mind. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are neighbors. And Christ's instruction to us is that we're to love our neighbors. He said, now, just because we're neighbors with someone though, and it doesn't mean that we don't love them if we put up a fence. He says, so what I wanna strive to do is to keep my fences short and meet in the middle and shake hands often. And that's my desire, that, that even within our own church family, man, there's gonna be a little bit of nuance of, of disagreement on, on some things about uh, the age of the earth and the timing of the return of Christ and the, the operation of the gift of the spiritual gifts today. There's gonna be some open-handed disagreement with our church family, and that's okay as long as we are united on the things that matter the most. The timeless wisdom of Augustine, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, charity, in all things, grace. So even when we have people with whom we vehemently disagree, what we are never allowed to do is forsake our primary responsibility to love our neighbors in the name of being right. Cling to our truth, but we wanna speak it in love. So we pursue unity doctrinally. Second, we wanna pursue unity spiritually. This is with the community of, of believers, the, the church as followers of, of Christ. Uh, we teach this in our membership class, but I've always loved the Hebrew word for covenant could be expressed as betweenness. And, and I like that because it really emphasizes just the deep relational nature of, of what it is that God is calling us into, both in relationship with him uh, and with each other. And, and listen, one of the reasons why we really uh, champion church membership as a church family is because, uh, again, I, I don't know what church background you might have. And I, I understand, man, there's some messy understandings of membership and there's probably some bad things that have happened uh, in the name uh, of membership. But let me just tell you where we, what we believe very simply about church membership as a church family. We believe what we're doing in membership is just acknowledging what is already true of our relationship. Because if we are in Christ, if you and I are in Christ, God as father means that you and I are brothers and sisters. We're siblings in the faith. God as son means that we have been united together as one with the blood of Jesus running through our veins. God as spirit means that we are together as the body of Christ. We are the dwelling place of, of God. And so what we believe we're doing in membership is just acknowledging that that's true. 
Like, let's, let's not speak less of what God has already spoken about us. Let's just come together and affirm what we already believe to be true, which is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are united by the blood of Jesus, that we collectively are the dwelling place of, of God. And, and I know like culturally that there is uh, this pushback against church membership. Again, I, I think there's a, uh, some legitimate reasons for that. But, but man, th- Jesus describes his relationship to the church as a bride and a groom. He looks at it as a marriage relationship as, as a marriage. And, and so here's the thing, like I, I believe in marriage. I believe in marriage. I'm, I'm married. I happen to be a big fan of marriage. It's awesome. And, and, and I believe it's, it's instituted by God. It's one of the, it's foundational to, to the creation story that God himself in Genesis chapter one, he initiates marriage. He brings man and woman together. And I believe that's his good and perfect design for marriage. But here's how I express my commitment in marriage. I don't express my commitment in marriage by date or by, by, by pursuing all wives everywhere, right? Like that would likely be frowned upon, I'm assuming. I don't express my commitment in marriage by, by pursuing all wives everywhere. I, pers- I, I express my commitment in marriage by pursuing one wife somewhere, namely mine. And, and so again, I get this idea that it's like, hey, I don't need to be a part of one church. I'm just part of the big C church. But man, the way we express our commitment to the big C church, just like marriage, is by a ferocious commitment to a single local church. It's not about being a name brand. It's not about tribalism. It's just the New Testament pattern. Every single follower of Jesus was committed to one single local church. And uh, man, I I got the opportunity this weekend to see just a great example of what happens when uh, a lot of people over time just fully invest themselves and commit themselves uh, to a single uh, local church. So this past weekend, I was speaking for a student event uh, up at Riverland Hills Baptist Church. I finished preaching in Columbia uh, at 10 o'clock last night. Um, So I'm like, I'm here this morning, but the lights aren't quite on yet. So <laughs> it, was a, it was a fun weekend, still kind of riding that, that adrenaline wave this morning. But man, uh, they're doing such a phenomenal job reaching their students. It's a, a great church, very healthy church up in uh, the Columbia, Irmo area. And um, as, as I'm walking around the room yesterday, they've got about 200 students at this Disciple Now weekend. Uh, they've got about 30 or 40 adult leaders. And over 20 of those adult leaders had grown up in that student ministry. And they were now in the place that they were turning around and they were discipling the next generation. Their current middle school pastor had been a student in that ministry. He came on staff as their middle school pastor just a couple of months ago. And as I just just got to float through and interact with people, I talked to families who have been helping lead student disciple now weekends for over 20 years who have been host homes for 15 years, who have been small group leaders for 10 and 12 years. And you just see the fruit of what happens when a group of people, because some of them remember a time there really wasn't much of a youth ministry. And instead of just jumping ship and saying, hey, we wanna go somewhere where we can find what we need, they said, no, no, we're gonna stay right here. We're gonna stay right here and we're gonna show up and say, what do we need to do to make this happen? And man, that's my desire for our church family is that we would just be committed to each other, fiercely committed to each other. Listen, we are human beings, we're, we're, we're sinful. We're, we're gonna mess up occasionally. I'm gonna let you down sometimes. You're gonna let me down sometimes. Finding a church is not about finding a perfect, perfect church. It's about finding the place where we can worship a perfect Christ because we're not perfect. We're going to let each other down. But when we're in covenant, when there's a betweenness, with us, that is how we reflect the Trinity, the inseparable bond of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived out in the covenant community of the believers. So we pursue unity doctrinally, we pursue it spiritually, and third, we pursue it relationally. 
So the first has to do more with our relationship vertically with God. The other uh, has to do uh, more with our relationship to the local church as a covenant community. And this is more horizontal, pursuing unity relationally. I love this from Tim Keller. He says, if this world was made by a triune God, relationships of love are what life is really all about. If from all eternity, without end and without beginning, ultimate reality is a community of persons knowing and loving one another, then ultimate reality is about love relationships. This is who God is. He has eternally been in loving community and relationship with his triune self. And he's made us, scripture says, in his image, which means the way we best reflect the love, uh, the loving relationship and community of the Godhead is by being in loving relationship and covenant community with each other. And this is what's been made possible for us through the work of the cross. This is made possible for us because this is what happened at the cross. The son who was conceived by the spirit at his birth is turned, is forsaken by the father at his death. The father forsakes the son to forgive his enemies. And the son takes our place in death so that we can be raised to him in life. And then the very same spirit who raised him from the grave lives with us today. And this is what we're called to reflect is this eternal, inseparable bond of of loving community. Guys, I I don't know about you, but I feel like every week I become a little bit more burdened by this. Our world right now is so fractured. It's so fractured. The the distance between us is is getting greater. The shouts are getting uh, louder and and louder. Again, this, uh, this digital community has promised us constant connection, but it's made us more isolated from each other than ever before. People are are no longer people to be loved. They are profiles to be attacked. It's easy for us to dehumanize each other because when I don't have to look at you flesh and blood in the eyes and remember that you are someone for whom Jesus Christ gave his life, then man, I'll lob a digital hand grenade without giving it a second thought. And I'm just, I'm so burdened by what's happening. It's not even just the, the, the broader culture. It's, it's even within the church culture today. We are so fractured and we're so divided. And, and listen, we've got to understand some division is necessary. Whenever we start getting into major doctrinal compromise between Christians and churches, some division is necessary in the, same, in, in the name of actual unity. Because listen, it's not enough for us to be united with Christians in appearance. We have to be united in substance. It's not true unity if we're locking arms with people who believe the wrong things about God. And that's not loving for our world because then they're not getting an accurate representation of who our God is. So some division, it needs to be gracious and it needs to be done in love, but some division is is necessary for us. But as much as we possibly can, as best as we possibly can, we need to be locking arms with those who tight-fisted with us are clinging to the, the key foundational doctrines of the Christian faith and who are committed to living those out in the world around us. We're gonna close with this from, from John chapter 17. You know, it amazes me. The night before Jesus went to the cross, the night before he goes to the cross, the night before he is going to suffer through the immense agony of crucifixion, He is not praying for a quick death. He's not praying for an escape. He's not praying to to, to get out of this. He does pray, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass. But ultimately he submits to the Father and he says, your will be done. What is Jesus praying for? 
the night before, he bears the entire burden of the world's sin and absorbs the fullness of the Father's wrath. What's, he's pray, what's he praying for? He's praying for his disciples and he's praying for you and he's praying for me. And so this is what I want to do. We're just, we can be eyes open, see this on the screen, but I want to read this this morning just as our closing prayer. And I want us to hear these words as the words that Jesus prayed over his disciples and not just over his disciples, but was in that moment also praying over us because this is what he desires for his church, that we would reflect the triune Godhead to the world around us. He prays to the Father in John 17. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them, and I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I will consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So it starts with truth. We have to be united in truth. And Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. It's Jesus praying for us. And this is what he's praying, that they may all be one, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He invites us into the Trinitarian community, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we would be perfectly one. Father, in, in the same way that you are one with the Son and the Son is one with the Spirit and the Spirit is one with the Father, Lord, you've invited us in to, to this great dance. And so, Lord, we praise you that you, you welcome us in to the eternally divine community through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask, Father, we, we ask boldly in faith in the name of Jesus Christ that you would bind the enemy away from Cross Community Church. Lord, that there would be no division whatsoever within the body. Father, that we would, as much as it depends on us, seek to live at peace with each other, that we would be perfectly one, just as you are one. Father, that we could accurately reflect the loving community and relationship that you've been modeling for all of eternity. We wanna model that in our world today. So Father, that's what we ask this morning. That's what we plead. Let the world see your love through our love for each other. Help us to get lost in the mystery and the wonder of who you are so that we'll be driven to worship. Thank you for what was made possible for us through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. That we can be one as you were one.